Hey, Laura. Hey, Todd. How's it going? I'm doing great. I mean, I'm. Yeah. I, it's it's early. I know that you don't feel bad for me because I am three hours ahead. Correct. But it is still, this is the only podcast that we've, or the first podcast that we've done in the morning. So, you know, still kind of waking up. I need a line of coffee. Yeah, I know. Something, <laughs> just just give me a needle right to the to the arm. IV, IV of coffee. Yeah. So, you know, doing well, but like, I've been super excited to talk to our guests that we're going to have this week. What's uh, her name, Laura? Oh, our guest's name is Tina Swithin, and we had the privilege of speaking with her. I'll go ahead and give everybody a little bit of info about her. She began documenting her journey through the family court system in her prolific blog, One Mom's Battle. And before she knew it, her story had gained international media attention in publications such as Glamour Magazine and Washington Times. Tina's custody battle spanned close to a decade and seems to kind of keep going, but she acted as her own attorney against an individual who suffers a personality disorder called uh, narcissistic personality disorder. In the end, Tina secured the very thing she fought so hard for her daughter's safety, and she has written four books about divorcing a narcissist and most recently has founded Family Court Awareness Month and the High Conflict Divorce Coach Certification Program. She now lives in San Luis Obispo with her husband and her two daughters. She's fascinating and, and, and so inspiring. What do you think? Oh, I mean, I, I just think that this, this is the perfect example of somebody who's taking back her life, you know, that there's nothing, I'm like speechless because she's just an inspiration. And I think that a lot of our listeners are really going to benefit from exactly. her perspective. I mean, even in, in that whole part about how Christy Brinkley is basically the reason that people know who she is. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's just, it's crazy that that all came together. Good morning. Welcome, Tina Swithin, to our program today. We are so excited to talk to you. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm very excited to be here and connect with you. Same. Yeah, We're we very are excited. Too. Yeah, very, very, very excited. Laura, you're the one who turned me on to her, and I haven't. I've gone down, you know, the YouTube. The, the I mean, got into a YouTube coma of Tina's work. Oh yeah, um, it's. I mean, just it's so fascinating, and it's so it's a topic that I think that a lot of people don't know about. And luckily, because of her and for you and and everybody else that's kind of been talking about it more recently, I think it's become you know the idea of narcissism and personality disorders and all that has become more in the public eye and and a concern in general. So we just really are excited to pick your brain because, you know, I'm I'm kind of a, I'll say a a novice uh, psychologist, if you will. (laughs) Well, what's a psychologist that has no degree in psychology? Um, I find it all, you know, very interesting and, and and I think that it's something that's tremendously helpful. For everybody. So I guess let's just go ahead and start with asking you, you know, before we get into all the deep traumatic stuff, um, you know, if you could just give us a little bit of your background about yourself and your ambitions and, and, and kind of everything prior to the marriage or things that are not even, you know, that you don't kind of encircle and all that. Yeah, gosh. Um, I grew up in, I was born in Chicago, moved to California when I was about nine years old, and I was actually raised by my dad. So it was just um, my dad, my parents were teen parents. And so my dad got custody of me when he was 19 and I was six months old. 
So it was kind of my dad and I against the world. And we grew up together and moved to California and uh, went through school. And when I was about 14 years old, I got the entrepreneur bug and started my first business. So I kind of, you know, out of high school, already had a business going and um, transitioned that into my early years, early 20s. And uh, that's kind of always been my path. I mean, that's incredible that your dad was 19 years old and it was you and him against the world. And, yeah. um, you know, I know that transferring to now that you, um, you you do so many things. You're an author, high conflict divorce counselor, blogger, advocate. Can you give us a little bit of background about, about what it is that you do now and why all of this is so important to you, why these things are important to you? Absolutely. I went, um, I found myself in a very high conflict divorce. I'm someone who's conflict avoidant by nature. And so I, I refer to myself as the accidental author because <laughs> this was, I always say my English teacher is rolling over in his grave thinking that I'm an author <laughs> to this day. Um, and so it, it was a journey that unfolded organically. I never set out to be a divorce coach or to write books. Um, I was, there was a point in my journey um, when my divorce started where I was so frustrated by things in the system. And I just decided to start a blog. At that point, I truly felt like I was the, I, I didn't know there were others out there. And I remember, you know, saying, if I, if I had to come up with a name, it feels like one mom's battle. And so I went online, I bought this domain name, and it, it kind of all started from that point, that blog. And um, so now I'm, I do divorce coaching for people. I um, actually train other people to become divorce coaches, kind of the lemons to lemonade, uh, taking their own journeys through the court system and now going out and helping others. That's awesome. I mean, that's, that's amazing to have, uh, you know, such a kind of uh, a purpose uh, after going through um, yeah. kind of what you've been through, which kind of leads us to my next uh, question, which is, you know, I, I want to ask, could you briefly go over this? But I think that that is so hard to wrap up everything. So, I mean, I think just could you explain in general your experiences that led to you to, to what you're doing now? When I found myself in this marriage, it was so confusing. I, you know, so many um, abuse victim survivors refer to it as a fog. I, I was in this place in my marriage where I remember my brother coming to visit and saying to me, I don't even recognize you. You know, your spark is gone. What is going on? And I thought I was putting on this great facade and that I was fooling everybody about how great life was. And because that had very much been my role in my marriage was to put on this show for the community. We were both very known in our business community. And um, apparently I wasn't doing a very good job and my brother really called it out. And I ended up after that sitting in a therapist's office and, and her hearing my story, you know, this poor woman, I, hour and a half, I emotionally vomited in her office. And, and she said, 
You know, it, everything you're describing to me, this person sounds highly narcissistic, possibly sociopathic. And back then there was nothing out there on the topic and being so, you know, rose colored glasses, optimist that I am, I was so excited to actually have a title. I ran home and I told him, <laughs> my therapist oh, said goodness. you're a narcissist. Let's look this up. Let's figure out sure he loved you know, how do we fix this? <laughs> How did he respond to that? <laughs> he looked at me kind of sideways. And back then, you know, you could find a definition of it online, but that was it. And so I remember we read the definition together. I still remember where we were in the kitchen when I had my laptop and I'm like, this is what's wrong. Aren't you excited? <laughs> and, um, because for so many years, I was the problem. You know, he was telling me, you oh, came right. from a broken home, you're the problem, you need help, blah, blah, blah. For me, it wasn't even about whose fault it was. It was just like, what do we do? <laughs> because I can't yeah. live like this. Right. And I remember him reading the definition and saying, well, that sounds like my dad, but that doesn't, I don't think that's me. And even then I was thinking, Oh my gosh, we are one step closer because he and his dad are the same person. So if he recognizes this in his dad, we are going somewhere here. This is good. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, you talk about, you just went into the word narcissist again. And um, I know you've written a three part series about divorcing a narcissist and as well as the, the blog we just talked about, One Mom's Battle. Now, can you explain for our listeners, sort of break down what a narcissist is and why you think uh, the general public should be aware of them and sort of, you know, not ready for them? But <laughs> in addition know. to that, I think we also kind of need to specify the difference between a narcissist and somebody who's narcissistic traits and somebody who has a, the full-blown personality disorder. So carry on. Right. I would love to hear your description. Yeah. So, you know, we all, we all have egos, all, every single one of us, and, and that's healthy and we should, but, you know, I almost think of it as a scale. You know, there's some people who are higher on that scale. They have bigger egos. We can name off all kinds of professions who fall into that category and, you know, very successful people typically tend to be higher on that scale when it crosses over to a point where it is affecting people's relationships, their lives, um, their businesses, all of those things, you know, that's where a psychologist needs to come in and can make a formal diagnosis. I will say it's really difficult to get a formal diagnosis of, um, you know, the, it's a category of personality disorders called the cluster B disorders. And it's narcissistic personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, which present day street term would be sociopaths. Um, there's also histrionic and then borderline. So they, they are very difficult. I'm obviously not qualified to make any type of diagnosis, but even those who don't have a full-blown diagnosis, but maybe they're higher on the scale during times of conflict or, you know, their world crumbles or falls, they tend to go over and become, you know, the conflict can be all consuming for those around them. So it kind of pushes them over the edge, even if they're normally maintaining. And I would very much, you know, describe my ex-husband as someone who 
if everything was going well in our world, all the money was coming in, it was flowing, business was going well, then things were actually tolerable. But whenever, you know, a bank loan didn't come through, you know, his big thing was finances, moving things around. And by the time our marriage ended, I found out we were over a million dollars in debt that I wasn't aware of. So we talk about a lot of them, you know, cheat. And his was his mistress was money. He was one point six million dollars in debt. And so, you know, it's what I came to find out is this person you know, is not who he portrayed himself to be. This is a facade. And and many people who discover that they're with a narcissist or sociopath borderline, um, you don't, you know, there's that extra layer of healing because you don't really know who that person is. It was all fake. And so it, it's a fascinating topic to get into, to start really studying Uh, personality disorders. But if you're dealing with someone, whether they have a full-blown diagnosable personality disorder or just high traits, it's not, there's nothing fascinating about it. It's terrifying (laughs) and and soul crushing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that it's, uh, it's, it seems like even just, you can read off kind of the, the, you know, if you go to the American Diagnostic Manual, DSM-5, they, you know, kind of have a definition that, you know, I'll, I'll briefly read, a kind of, uh, you have to meet five of the nine following criteria, grandiose sense of self-importance, a preoccupation with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, a belief that he or she is special and unique and can only be understood by or should associate with special or high-status people, a need for excessive admiration, a sense of entitlement, interpersonality, exploitive behavior, a lack of empathy, envy of others, and a demonstration of arrogant, haughty behaviors or attitudes. As we know, that doesn't always, you know, with any kind of disorder, always fit, you know, into a tight little box with every person that that you meet. What are some of the more common red flags that you would say to kind of personalize those those different things in the DSM-5, like what would you say are the red flags of a narcissist and how somebody might be able to, you know, kind of spot them before it gets too bad? It was this, this sense of entitlement, you know, that, um, Mm. you know, he didn't deserve a parking ticket or he, you know, he was above everything, this entitlement. And it was so subtle in the beginning that it didn't, I saw it as confidence, you know, and coming from a broken home, being someone who, you know, sees the best in people and is, you know, just kind. I and a, used to be a fixer. I used to watch a lot of his behaviors and go, yeah, but nobody's perfect and we can work on those things. And, you know, but for me, you know, the lack of empathy is the hallmark characteristic that there are so many variables, regardless of which type, you know, which narcissists we're talking about, but that underlying issue is pervasive in all of them. But the the scary part is if you're dealing with one who is, I call it impression management, who is really skilled at impression management, they can fake empathy. Um, You know, it's cognitive empathy, but do they really feel it at a core level? No, they're not capable of that. Going back to the red flags that I 
you know, he was, he bragged a lot, but it was subtle bragging. It wasn't the type that you would consider to be bragging and, and putting other people down, you know, were, were you just read off about how they can only be understood by people who are special or equally special. If somebody didn't have a college degree, you know, he would make a subtle comment, it very passive aggressive judgment but it wasn't overt. And so it was confusing. And then he would counter it with, you know, this preemptive, how great he was. He would donate his time and help his neighbor who was blind. And it was just bizarre things like that, that I didn't ask, you know, what are your good deeds that you're going around doing, (laughs) you know, and somebody who is really out there doing things, kind things for the right reason, wouldn't bring that up on a first date and brag about it. It was uh, it was just out of the blue, but it was kind of bombarding me. And I'll say the love bombing, speaking of bombarding, mm-hmm. was looking back the biggest red flag that I didn't have a label for at the time. And can you go into that a little bit? Love bombing? Yes. So I was 26 when I met this person and I had actually taken a year off of dating before I met him because I had this tendency to go for the bad boy types and, and it ended me up or ended up just, (laughs) (laughs) we're all a little guilty, the the guy in the band, all that stuff. And it never ended well. We think it's going to, we think it's going to end well. Yeah. We're going to fix them. It never does. (laughs) So I remember 25 years old, I just decided I am not dating for a year. I'm going to work on myself and I'm going to go into the dating world, really paying attention to the yellow flags, the orange flags, the red flags, all of that. So then I meet this person and, you know, I remember the first week we met, he called and said, uh, take the day off work. I've just put my credit card down at the local day spa. I want you to go pamper yourself. And and I thought, wow, this is what it's like to date a man. I've apparently dated boys in the past. And I thought this is what grown-up dating is like. And I would get to work and there would be a huge bouquet of flowers. It kind of became a joke in the office. Like, (laughs) what's she going to get this week? And the purpose of love bombing is to keep you from being able to think. You are constantly being bombed with attention, you know, poetry, flowers. Grandiose gestures, basically. Just a bunch of grandiose, yeah. If I, if I said, hey, I, I, you know, someday want to go to Portland, he would literally buy plane tickets to go to Portland by the next day, you know, and it was constant things like that to where it was like, wow, I've never experienced this before, but you are so overwhelmed that you truly, you can't think. And, and that's their goal. What do you think like he or a narcissist in general is looking for in a partner? And how, how do you protect yourself from that? You think they're actually actively looking for someone who will take the bait? Yes, because I, the, the people that I meet, both men and women who have been targeted by this type of person, all have similar personalities. They're the people who see the best in others. They're optimistic. They're kind. You know, they're people who have that light that everybody gravitates toward, whether whether they're super outgoing or introvert, just that, that light, that kindness, that 
excessive empathy a lot of times. You know, they seek people who are the exact opposites of themselves. And, and I think that there's a part of it they want to be like that person and, and they suck you dry. It's like a vampire, you know, over time. But also I do believe that there's something about it to where they want to be seen with that person in public or on their arm because other people go, wow, she or he is so kind and, and loving. This person must be that way also. Otherwise, why would she be with him? And so I think that there's an aspect of that as well. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's like what Todd kind of asked of how you can kind of protect yourself from it. It seems almost impossible because, you know, you, you are who you are. You don't want to dim your own light just to avoid, you know, these kind of people. I, but... I think a good, a good test is putting up a boundary. Because the one thing that narcissists don't like is boundaries or being told no. And so if I were in a dating relationship right now, I'd say, hey, you know what? Things are going super fast. You know, I'm going to kind of decompress for a week and, and take some time to myself. I guarantee you that person will text to check in with you, call, send flowers, do something because they can't help themselves and they can't respect boundaries. A normal person would be, hey, go enjoy your downtime. You know, that's awesome. And so, you know, kind of not testing, but you kind of do have to, you know, put up boundaries here and there a little big and see how they react. I think that's an excellent kind of litmus test of it's almost sometimes I like to say with certain situations as a bar owner, you know, when you have to make decisions to fire somebody or something like that, it's almost like the way that they handle that says a lot more about them and validates your feelings. So it's almost like if you were to put up a boundary and they can't handle it, then, you know, that I made the right decision. Do you, I think this might be one of the, maybe the million dollar question, but do, do you feel like that narcissists and other, I don't even necessarily lump them in with the rest of the personality disorders, but do you feel like narcissists do have the ability to change? No. I did not expect that answer. Please elaborate. <laughs> <laughs> I think that there's, you know, there's a reason why. Well, first of all, it's hard to actually diagnose them because they don't stay in therapy for long enough. If they do go to therapy, it's because they need a Band-Aid. You know, they keep failing in relationships or jobs or whatever. But I do believe, you know, there's a fracture in their wiring. And I know I really look up to Dr. Romani and she's an expert on this topic and she's touched on these things to where there's some type of trauma or something that takes place, you know, in their early years, usually, you know, four or five, six years old. And it, it is like a actual crimp in their wiring that a lot of times it feels like you're dealing with a six-year-old child emotionally. There are people who are emotionally stunted at that age. And so the narcissists who do show up to therapy and actually stay for a while, all they're learning to do is act. So they're just, they're playing a role there. I've, I've spoken to someone who's diagnosed in the cluster B category. And he told me, I watch TV. Like if I'm going to a funeral, I will watch a episode on TV with a funeral so that I can study how other people 
act, present themselves. So it's truly terrifying because these people are going through life as actors and some of them are really, really good at it. So do I think they can change? Absolutely not. I don't think they're capable. And that's why a lot of psychologists are hesitant to ever give a firm diagnosis because that on someone's medical chart is, you know, it's known that that there's no fixing that type of person. And being a victim of, of a narcissistic <laughs> abuser, can you share some ways that you healed from that, continuing to heal? And what advice would you give to others on their journey for, for healing? So, you know, my situation, I, I never really... <laughs> It would be one thing if I left the relationship and then could focus on that. But when I left the relationship, it immediately started a custody battle that I I always call it a category five divorce hurricane. My healing for a long time really had to be put on a shelf because I was in survival mode. In my family court journey, I had to represent myself. I wasn't able to hire an attorney. So I was working full time, taking care of two kids 90% of the time and acting as my own attorney. So for a very long time, I just had to compartmentalize what I had been through. And it's only been in recent years that I've been able to take that box down and start unpacking it with a therapist. I think for me, it's critical to have a therapist who understands the cluster B disorders and narcissistic abuse, because the one thing that I've talked to so many psychologists and they're not trained on this, you would think they would be because it's such a huge issue, but in their training, it's really something that they, they read the textbook definition of what it means but they don't go beyond that. And unless someone has really lived this and experienced it, I don't think they're capable. I have psychologists come to me for guidance on understanding this disorder. So, you know, I I think a therapist who specializes in narcissistic abuse tells me they've been through it themselves, or a therapist who specializes in trauma, a trauma-informed therapist because you know they there's some deep work that needs to be done. For me, it's been EMDR. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but no, definitely. Uh, it, if you it, don't mind describing it, yeah, that would be mm-hmm. fantastic. So the way it was described to me, so it's kind of weird. I would go into a therapist's office, hold two different paddles in my hand, and there's different ways to do it, but they buzz back and forth. And so you're sitting there and you're, you're thinking of, you know, a specific incident that caused you a lot of trauma and your, your eyes are closed. It's almost like meditating and you're just letting your, your mind go. And as you're processing these memories, these buzzers are going back and forth in your hand. And how I've come to understand it is that these traumatic memories are stored in in a certain part of our brain. It's the reptilian brain area. And so that's what causes the fight or flight mode when we're triggered. The EMDR, by going back and forth with the buzzers, or a lot of people do it with visual, you know, light things back and forth, it helps to redistribute it through your brain so that your brain can attack these things as a united front, you know, a teamwork. 
instead of just going into that fight or flight. It has truly been life-changing for me. I've had a lot of trauma through my family court journey. There was a specific town where I used to have to drop my kids off for their dad's parenting time that I couldn't even drive to the town without having a full-blown panic attack. And so working through that with EMDR, you know, now there's times I drive to that town and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm here. And I didn't even think about it on the way. And, and so it's been truly life-changing. That's wonderful. And now what are some, um, there's two parts to this next question. One, um, what are some resources, books, videos that you would recommend someone to check out if they believe they might be involved with a narcissist? And then two, can you go ahead and give us the names of your books? Your books have been extremely helpful. I know Laura and I have, uh, have perused through a lot of them. So those, that's the two parts. So Dr. Romani, is is the number one person in this whole realm of narcissistic abuse. She gets it at a level that I've never seen before. And I've attended her live events where when she's talking to someone, she is so in tune with them and you can almost see healing take place before your eyes. Wow. So if you can't go to one of her events, the next best thing, you know, pull up, get on your comfy cozies, get on the couch with popcorn and do a, you know, net or a YouTube marathon with Dr. Romani's videos. Whether your narcissist was a parent, a colleague, whatever it is, uh, there's so much healing to be found in her work. And I would say her books as well. Those are the resources I would recommend. I have multiple books. My first one is Divorcing a Narcissist, One Mom's Battle. That's really my journey through meeting this person and then the family court system, which is still going on for me. I'm, I, I'm almost at the 11 year mark, which, so my story is still unfolding in family court, but, um, and then advice from the battlefield is one of my other books. It's a compilation of advice from others who have been on this journey, rebuilding after the storm, your storm doesn't have to be done. It's a a really easy read and you can kind of do it wherever you are in your journey. And my favorite is the narc decoder, because so many of us, when we're being forced into a co-parenting relationship by the court system, you know, you shouldn't have to talk to your abuser on a, a daily basis, but unfortunately the way of the court you are. And so the narc decoder helps to take the attacks that could, you know, I remember in my early days just being completely disabled when I would get one of these emails and it helps you to break it down to understand what they're really doing, you know, the projection, the deflection, all of these things, and then to actually find humor in it. And I do believe, you know, obviously when your kids are suffering and you're fighting to protect them, there's nothing funny about that. But if you just, you know, take the narcissist communication Breaking it down and seeing it for what it is, mm-hmm. you can find humor in it. And for me, it was important to do. Yeah, I found the the Narc Decoder book, like you said, it's not funny, but it's definitely gives some levity a little bit when you're dealing with, you know, I, I've dealt with numerous narcissists throughout my life. And sometimes you're just left going, what? what did I just read? What was that? Yeah. And it's, it's full right. of just nonsense. Well, I think a lot of people 
called word salad, where it's just kind of, you know, throwing everything out there. And, and it was, it was really awesome to read just your breakdown of, I think it's helpful really in some circumstances, normal people that are kind of emotionally spiraling because they do the same things of, you know, projection of, of kind of just lying about basically putting their problems on you. So even for those that don't have a direct relationship, I mean, I would definitely recommend to to read it because it explains a lot about like psychology of, of how that kind of mindset works anyways. But, and as we all know, not all narcissistic relationships are a husband and wife. It can be, um, you know, coworker, a mother, um, even, you know, a friend, but uh, myself being a divorced single mother, you know, I, I'm particularly, kind of particularly uh, interested kind of in you eventually got your ex-husband's rights terminated to your kids. How and why did you eventually do that? And, and do you feel like it was the right decision for your family ultimately? So my, my court battle started in 2009. We went through two full custody evaluations, minors counsel being appointed, multiple CPS investigations, my kids were in danger every single time they got in the car. And the majority of it was emotional and psychological abuse. But there were times where I felt, you know, he had an alcohol addiction in addition to, I believe, being a sociopath. And so there were weekends where I put my kids in the car and I would literally memorize every feature to their faces and what they were wearing, because I, you know, I knew he was in such a bad place spiraling or had hit rock bottom that I didn't know if I'd ever see my kids again. You know, my kids were in danger. And so it was over the years, you know, slowly chipping away at his time. Originally, the court just lumps both people into the high conflict category. And that's very unfair. You know, I am If you're angry at me, I will literally be awake at 3 a.m. thinking about it. I hate conflict. So to be lumped into that category and stamped with that label is soul crushing. And you're in this place of desperation going, I know how scary this person is. And we're sending a two-year-old with him in my my case, yeah, I think terminating his parental rights, it, it was a process. It wasn't overnight. It took from 2009 to 2014 before I was able to get the court to cut off all contact with him. And then it took several years after that for me to be able to terminate his rights, which is not easy to do. Um, and I'll say, you know, the Every step of the way, I would be in court representing myself, looking like a deer in headlights. I'd go into the hallway. Attorneys would feel bad for me because they just watched, you know, me get smacked down in court. And they would say, hey, you know what? You're asking for supervised visits. It's not going to happen. And I refused to listen to that. I would go, you know, thanks for your input. You know, put on my positivity blinders and just go, no, I have to do everything in my power so I can sleep tonight, knowing that I've tried my best. You know, if something happens to my kids, it's on the court system. It's not going to be because I didn't fight for them. So it was 2019. I strategically 
did not hold him accountable for child support. Um, not because I didn't need it. I, there were times I was feeding my kids from food pantries at a local church, but I knew that money was his number one button. And if I pressed that, he was going to come for my kids. So I never pressed it. So when his child support arrears got to $100,000 and it started actually affecting his life, he couldn't get his passport renewed. He needed to travel. Um, wow. I knew I had leverage to say, hey, you know what? You're not seeing them anyway. Why would you keep paying for them? I'm willing to excuse this entire balance if you sign off on your rights. And, and so wow. it wasn't that easy. You know, I had to get an attorney to actually really drive it in, but we were successful in terminating his rights. Wow. That is like, I mean, divorce is hard enough as it is. So to then kind of have that lingering over you for so long, I mean, I'm, you know, it's, it's, it's so hard as a mom, you you know, you're constantly balancing that kind of wanting, you want the best for your kids. So it's, you know, that, you know, my children's father, I want them to have uh, a relationship because, you know, it's, it's not really a, a huge safety issue or anything like that, but it, it, that mama bear does come out. And, you know, I know that can be incredibly frustrating when you're dealing with somebody that maybe is not dealing with the court system, who's not really going to be oh, like, oh, well, you're, you're the only woman in this room that, that is trying to fight for this. You know, it, it, it's, I think, more prevalent than most people know. But, you know, kind of switching to a little bit of a happier note, um, you are remarried. So, yeah. so how did you meet your current husband? And, and how has the trauma of all of this affected your relationship, whether that's good or bad? So <laughs> again, my, my rose colored glasses, when my marriage came to an end, I felt bad for him because I'm the one who's more social. He didn't really have any close friendships. And so I went to several of our close friends and I said, Hey, you know what? I'm going to be just fine. I'll go out and make my own friends. I'm assigning you to him. <laughs> like I want him to feel support. This was before I knew how crazy things were going to get. But that's who I was going into this divorce is, you know, you find friends and uh, or you have these friends. I'll go make new ones. I posted an online ad a little ways after our separation and basically no picture. And I just said, hey, I don't care who you are female, male, I'm just looking for new friends. Like I just want, it was so important for me to go out into the world and actually be a transparent person because I had worked so hard to keep up this facade that was killing me. And so I just, I put this ad out there. Um, Glenn, my husband answered it and said, and he had been dating for a couple of years and was tired of the whole dating scene. And he was like, oh, somebody who just wants to meet for coffee. Perfect. Let's go do that. So we went, met for coffee. He was the only person I met online and we've been together ever since. And um, zero red flags. We're going on almost 12 years and zero red flags. He's a great guy. That's amazing. And did you feel like when you, um, <sighs> when you met him that you were 
a little hesitant to bring up everything that was going on or did you feel completely comfortable with him? So after our like third coffee date together, I found out that he knew everything. I was kind of keeping it under wraps, but because my ex-husband and I were known in our community, are the demise of our business because when you're $1.6 million in debt, you really can't keep businesses going anymore. It had been splashed across all of the local papers. So he knew what was going on in my life. But, you know, I really, we did keep very much a friendship mode for a long time. I didn't involve him in the craziness of the court stuff. He knew hey, she just went to the women's shelter to check in. He knew there was stuff going on, but I I really, I didn't involve him in the court stuff. Why? Um, I, I got to the point where I was tired of trying to explain it to anyone because it's the twilight zone. Mm -hmm. Unless you have been through family court, you know, people are looking at you sideways and going, well, wait, that can't happen. There must be more to the story. And there isn't, you know, it is very much like walking into the wild, wild west. You don't know what's going to happen. And it was exhausting enough to keep up all of these things. And then to have to try to explain it to people who didn't get it. I mean, when he and his ex-wife got divorced, they never stuck foot in court. They did it all in mediation. <laughs> They're normal people. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and for me, it was also on the weekends that I had downtime and my kids were gone, I didn't want to talk about it. You know, I wanted to, I had to keep myself busy. I had to, you know, go out and be social and do all those things because if I sat still or, or stewed on this, uh, it would have broken me. And I didn't have that luxury. You know, it's like, where do I schedule in a nervous breakdown? I don't know. <laughs> There's no room on the calendar for one. So, so when, you know, during the times that Glenn and I would hang out on the weekends that I didn't have my kids, that was the last thing I wanted to talk about. I wanted to enjoy life and uh, stay busy. Well, I have a question. So you talked about it a little earlier, but I, I'd really like to, to kind of revisit what it means to actually set a boundary with a narcissist. And also, especially after a divorce, can you please briefly explain, you know, briefly, like Laura said, briefly, um, <laughs> what, uh, what no contact, gray rocking and yellow rocking are? Sure. Our, our therapist, when, when we are leaving this type of relationship, our therapist will tell us no contact, you know, you have to, you can't engage with this person, which ideally, yeah, that's exactly what we should be allowed to do. Or if you have kids together and you have to communicate with this person, there's a, a concept called gray rock. And it's basically in all of your communication being as boring as a gray rock. So you're just very, you know, if I got an, an email, a gray rock response would be noted. That's it. You know, yeah, <laughs> got it. Nothing interesting to see here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so zero emotions and, and literally you, you are the personality of a gray rock so that they don't look to you for their feed supply and they get tired of it and they move on. When you have kids and you're under the microscope of the family court system, 
keeping in mind that the court doesn't know who either of you are, and for all they know, you could be the problem. Gray rock can really hurt people in child custody situations because it makes you look, you know, they could form the opinion that you're bitter. You don't, you're, you're bitter because this person has moved on and has a new relationship or you're a cold hearted person by nature. And so that's what comes across. I created something called yellow rock which at the base, it's still a gray rock. You're not giving this other person a feed supply, emotion, anything else, but there's a touch of, I actually have a gray rock around here somewhere. It's a gray rock with a, a yellow heart on it. And it's operating from my authentic place of truth. I am a kind person. I am a courteous person. So when I'm communicating with this person, I am allowing the court to see who I am. Um, my authentic truth is coming through. I still don't show emotion, but it might say, uh, you know, hope you have a great weekend at the end. And, and mentally, I could be giving this person the mental finger <laughs> or the middle finger, <laughs> but I am not doing that in the email. I'm saying, you know, um, thanks so much for the information. I hope you have a great weekend. I'm still, there's nothing in there that he could take and spin or she can take and spin, but I'm showing who I am. And what does... you never know what the court's going to read. Exactly. You know, the court, you could submit a hundred documents. The court could read one email that you sent where you did unleash or say something that you shouldn't have. And that's going to be the opinion they form of you. And Tina, what does supply mean? Supply, I think of it as we are a drug to the narcissist and it's like they're, you know, a drug addict and we are the drug. And so they're coming at us um, to get their fix, to get their feed. That could be me reacting in a positive way. It couldn't be me telling him off to them. It doesn't matter if it's positive or a negative reaction. They like to provoke and get a reaction because then that feeds them. This is true psychological warfare. I have said so many times that when you get your family court case number, if you're in family court, it's almost like being assigned your own personal terrorist with that case number. You know, that's how that if I could only describe it in one sentence, that would very much be it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that, that it's just, it seems like you've got to just constantly be on your game and that's got to be exhausting. And that kind of leads me to, you know, something I know you're passionate about is kind of the failures of the court system and the people that are are surrounded, not necessarily just the judges and, and, and um, people that are working right in the court, but the personnel, the mediators, the investigators, if you will, what do you think the biggest failures that have been made were, you know, in your case and in others by the courts, DSS, all those other kind of personnel uh, when it comes to these things? I, I think there's there's literally a lack of education and training. So many people are shocked to know that in most states, there are zero requirements for a family court judge to have any training in domestic violence. Um, Excuse me? And zero. <laughs> Like, like none. In like not California, even- where I'm at, 
it is a suggestion that within 12 months of being on the bench, they, I think it's three or five hours of domestic violence training, Wow! but it's the 101 version. My teenage daughters could teach a more complex version of domestic violence. And so you've got, and, you know, family court judges do not want to be there. It's almost a punishment. They would much rather be in any other branch. And sometimes when they are punished in other branches, they're transferred for a rotation to family court as a punishment. And so you've got people who have no training in this don't understand trauma, are unfairly categorizing these as high conflict cases when we know it only takes one person to create conflict. So, so that's half the problem. You know, when, when I can go to the local animal regulation or pound and adopt a dog and it takes longer for me to adopt a dog than it does for a family court judge to decide the fate of my child, we've got a problem we have a huge issue. It's a crisis. You know, there are over 800 children just since my case started who have been murdered by separating or divorcing parents. I I believe the number is, it's near 120 at this point. 120 of those cases were one parent begging the court to protect the child. So it's not like they didn't know that this could happen. You know, we have people who are convicted sexual predators, convicted domestic violence offenders who are given visitation with their children. It's, parental rights carry more weight than child safety. And that's truly the issue. Can you say that one more time? Parental rights carry more weight than yeah. child safety. That is alarming. It's terrifying. It, you know, children are treated like property. They're divided like, in a, you know, almost like you would do a retirement account. Their human rights are being violated every single day in our present day court system. And you know what, when legislative change starts getting pushed in any state, you know what the number one objection is? Judges do not want mandatory training. Oh my goodness. They just, just for yeah. themselves. Well, you have to think about it too. Most judges are highly narcissistic. Their egos are top notch because of the, you know, most of them were attorneys and we know Laura. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm an in attorney, that, but that, hopefully that, you know, I'm absolved of that. Hopefully there are amazing <laughs> attorneys who are not even registering on the scale, yeah. but it is a profession where we see a lot of narcissism. And yeah. then these people are going on to positions of power and they're playing God with people's lives. And so even if you have, you know, you're on the top end of the scale, talk about pushing you over when you get to play God and, and there's no regulation, there's no oversight and they don't want someone coming in telling them that they have to attend, you know, God forbid they have to sit through a five hour domestic violence training when they're working with domestic violence victims. And, you know, I'll, If I can just add, we are doing as a society such a disservice to victims of domestic violence because the messaging we are sending them is be brave, leave this abuse. That's the right thing to do. Get your kids out of it. If they don't, we're judging them. You know, why would you stay? Then they, the only recourse they have once they do finally make that brave decision to leave is family court. 
And so now they've just walked into a whole new avenue of abuse that they didn't see coming. I know that describes my journey. Every single day I walked in there thinking, wow, as soon as they hear all of these horrible things, they're going to protect my kids. It's not what's happening. Yeah. I mean, there's, I think so many things you touched on there that are like not only extremely disturbing, but as an attorney who I hope I like to think is not highly narcissistic, but just realistically, I mean, you're required to do, depending on the state you're in, 15, 20 hours of continuing legal education every year just to maintain your your status as an attorney. It's just, it's, it's um, baffling to me that the judges wouldn't have a similar, you know, requirement. And, and I guess that kind of goes to like, I, I was, I was going to basically ask why you think that personality disorders are not considered in the court system when they do kind of seem to take into consideration, you know, drinking or, um, you know, other misbehavior in a way, do you just think it's a lack of training? I think it's a couple of things. I think number one, it's almost impossible to get a solid diagnosis. Most psychologists, you know, they don't have enough time with the person to really make that determination. So, or they've been trained not to, because once that person has that on their record, it's, you know, it's a terminal mental health condition um, in a lot of ways. And so they just put that the person has high narcissistic traits, but there's no research. I mean, there's no research out there, even if you had a firm diagnosis that says that this is what this person does as a parent, or this is how dangerous this person is, or how bad of a co-parent they would be. We have zero research. We need it. If anybody's listening who does research, that's what we need to pump out so that we can take it into the court and say, this person had diagnosed with high narcissistic traits what does that mean for these kids? Because I see diagnosed antisocials, sociopaths walking out with 50-50 custody because we're dividing these kids, you know, like a line item on a spreadsheet because the courts just don't know what that means and how it affects the kids. Yeah. And I'd say that, you know, that, that seems to be a big part of why the system as a whole is broken. But if there was you know, one thing that you could think of that we should do that should be changed sooner rather than later, what would you say that one thing would be? We need to work against the the current legislation that's popping up all over the country, and that's 50-50 legislation. There should be zero automated 50-50. We have to, you know, when a case, when there's any abuse allegations alleged, that case needs to be put through a different process. It needs to be flagged. We need trauma-informed experts who can come in and truly do what is in the child's best interest, not the parent. So, you know, unfortunately, there's huge pushes across the country right now. Florida is, if the governor in Florida approves it, that's going to be a 50-50 state. And that will mean... You know, there's somebody who just ran over his wife and kids. He will be a candidate for 50-50 custody. It will almost be automated. That's terrifying. So we're moving in the wrong direction, not the right direction. How can we help stop that legislation as individuals? 
calling uh, the governor's office, calling whenever, you know, a lot of these individuals, these groups, and I love dads, I was raised by my dad, but a lot of it is father's rights groups who are pushing the 50-50 legislation. It's in Ohio right now, they're trying to get it through, calling, getting involved, you know, letting your senators know that this is not what's best for kids. Right. Um, we just created the, a whole group of advocates, the top advocates in the entire country have just come together and created the National Safe Parents Coalition. And I encourage everyone to join. It will be the central hub to keep people posted, calls to action on legislation and all of those things. You know, on a little bit of a little bit of a lighter note, Christy Brinkley uh, seemed to overwhelmingly endorse your book and your story, which we all I'm obsessed with Christy Brinkley. I think she's incredible. (laughs) I actually watched when she went on YouTube and really urged people to get your book. Did it surprise you to connect with her on such a painful topic about uh, divorcing a narcissist? And did you know she had already gone through the similar struggle? So I have a great Christy Brinkley story for you. I don't watch television. Like I never, never watch movies, never watch TV. People always ask me, do you know so-and-so? I'm like, no, sorry, never seen it. I just happened to be, it was March of 2012. I was working from home. I happened to have my TV on in the background and Matt Lauer of all people, and we know where that's gone now, was interviewing Christy Brinkley. And he was just, he actually put her in tears. He was saying, why can't the two of you just get along for the sake of your kids? Why can't you put your differences aside? And he was relentless. And I just remember going, first of all, who is this woman? Why is this guy treating her like this? And just being fully focused on this interview. And then she said three words that, well, a couple words, changed my life. She said, Google the term divorcing a narcissist. I had just started my blog, One Mom's Battle, six months before that. And so my little blog went from 40 views a month and 35 of them were me (laughs) to 40,000 overnight. Because back then I was the only person out there talking about any of these things. And so I truly credit Christy with where I am today. And it was about two weeks after that interview she actually had her assistant reach out to me and say, hey, Christy's going to be in Los Angeles doing a, a Broadway production. She would love to meet you. And so my husband and I drove down to LA. We met with Christy Brinkley. We watched her show. And she is, you know, around that time, she said, you need to write a book. The blog's great, but people need something, you know, to hold, to read, all of that. And so she's really the inspiration for my first book. And a reason why I have the platform I have today. That's amazing. I had no idea that it was kind of that intertwined. I know we'd meant, you know, you'd mentioned to me that she's helped you, you know, with, with some raising money and and things like that. But she, she literally kind of pushed you almost to be like, you, you're the one that's going to get this message out. And, and at that point, did you like always know that you wanted to be a writer? Not at all. Um, You know, I just, I started just originally, it was cutting and pasting my blog and putting it into a a Word document. And I just started every night, I would just add to it. And it became my 
uh, you know, purging everything that was happening cathartic. in this court battle. It was cathartic. It was healing. And I remember when I finished that first book saying to my therapist, I love you and you're wonderful, but this book has been more healing for me than three years of therapy. <laughs> and it yeah. was true because it was kind of like just getting it all out. And then it, it took off from there. And then I went on to write other books, but no, she's been huge friend of OM of one mom's battle and huge supporter of all things that I've done over the years. Well, I would definitely say that, you know, as far as, you know, I'm sure it was surprising to you not being a writer that how cathartic it was to actually write it down. But just from doing a lot of research with this, you know, one of the biggest things is when you're going through the abuse is being isolated from others and having to keep quiet and cover and, and all of that. So I could see how being able to finally speak out and, and tell your story could be, you know, almost it's got to be a weight a little bit lifted off of you. Did you feel like that once it came out? Huge, huge. And then, you know, t- even to this day, if I go back and I read one of the earlier chapters I was operating in such a state of trauma and survivor survival for so long that when I go back and read that, it's almost like I had blocked it out. I'm like, oh my God, I forgot about that. Or, you know, and it's, so I'm so grateful that I was documenting all of those things along the way. That's amazing. Kind of in that same vein, you start writing books, you didn't realize that you were ever going to be doing that, probably didn't realize you'd be hanging out with Christy Brinkley. But how did you eventually get involved with with coaching others? And and do you feel like in a way that this was kind of your calling all along? Absolutely. You know, and I, I cringe when people say, you know, everything has a purpose or whatnot, because sometimes... I don't believe that to be true. I think there are some things that people go through that are so horrific that, you know, that's not a good phrase to throw out at them. Mm -hmm. But in my case, I do believe that there was purpose to what I went through. And when I started, I used to work in PR, tourism PR, and it was a fun job. I got to, I did a lot of travel writing. And so I would get to go on vacations that were paid for and it was pretty fun. But then through my own court experience, I would meet other women in the courtroom. I remember I I probably looked like a stalker. I would hear somebody's case in court and then follow them out into the hallway on a break and be like, can we go to lunch? We have so much in common. Oh no. (laughs) I I just started, you know, developing this group of, of other moms and that kind of started expanding. And especially when Christy Brinkley put me on the map and I was getting emails from Ireland and all over the place, people desperate for help. And I started on my free time, just going to sit in the courtroom as an observer and study the system and, and study cases and study narcissism. It was helping people for a long time for free. And then I got to the point where I can't do both. I can't keep this job and keep doing this work because it's just, it's overwhelming. So I took a huge leap of faith and quit my job and uh, opened the doors and started 
you know, helping other people. And it's, it's evolved to where now I actually run a coach training program and train other people to do what I do. Through all of your coaching work and all of the therapy work that you've done, do, Tina, do you feel fully healed or do you think that you will always be affected by the trauma caused by your ex-husband? I don't know that that will ever completely go away. You know, yesterday was a great example of that. I got served paperwork and, you know, so many people put me up on this pedestal as you're so strong. You're this amazing warrior. You protected your kids. Well, you know, yesterday when I got served with this paperwork, I, it derailed me for the entire day because it trauma puts you right back in that point of time where it originally occurred. And the court system is a huge place of trauma for me. And so to think about going to court, you know, next month, it's not on my list of favorite things to do, I'll tell you. And even though I have an attorney now, um, which I didn't for all those years, I'm absolutely grateful uh, that I do have an attorney. It's still traumatizing. Yeah. So it's, I don't know if you ever fully heal from this type of trauma. I don't wish it on anyone. Uh, It's kind of like grief. You know, you never get over it. You just get through it. And I think that that's probably the same thing about surviving a narcissist. Yeah. With grief that, you know, people always say it never totally goes away. It just gets softer, you know, quieter uh, as time goes on. But, you know, that there could be it comes in waves and you could just be hit by it. Yeah. And, you know, I will say my toolbox, my my self-care and my, you know, healing toolbox is much fuller than it used to be back in the day when all this was happening. And so, you know, at this point in my journey, I can get myself recentered and back on track a lot quicker than I would have, you know, 10 years ago. So I, I do, you know, it's progress and, and we have to be grateful for, for every baby step forward. Yeah. I mean, this is, it seems like a very multi-layered, you know, issue. It's not cut and dry. Uh, there's a lot of gray area. So as a, as a coach, do you find that you have to change your approach when you're dealing with each individual person you're working with? Uh, or is it all seem kind of so similar that that you just go with kind of the same toolbox no you know if five people came to me with the same question I would have five different answers depending on who they're up against a lot of what I do is is let's profile this person almost like the FBI would profile a criminal you know like I had mentioned in with my ex-husband money was his biggest button you know for some it could be image they don't really you know they're threatening court because they know you don't want to go to court but in all honesty they don't want to go to court either and and you know have it known that they did x y and z or whatnot or have you know a picture of your black eye put up on a big screen for everybody in the small community to see because so many of these things are public record so it's it's really figuring out who the judge is that makes a huge um, difference because if if i were presenting my case even here in my local courtroom i have you know judge a and judge b the same case, same circumstances, I would present two different ways depending on which judge I'm in front of. So helping people to figure out who is your judge, who are the players in your case, you know, there's so many variables that go into this that 
there's no one size fits all approach. If there was, I would just write that book, close up shop and <laughs> go back to travel writing. That's true. <laughs> you always can still go back to travel writing. <laughs> exactly. Tina, how does your journey and your story continue and how do you continue to heal and help others? How are you going to turn your next page? So, you know, I, as I shift right now, I'm shifting from coaching to advocacy work and actually making change in the system. And, and so much of my healing over the years have come from being able to take what I've been through and help other people be that person that I wish I would have had back then. But now, you know, I, I'm at a point where I am wanting to learn everything about our legislative process and how do we fix this because it wears on you over time. You know, there's only so long you can sit in the trenches and, and hold other people's hands without it taking a toll. Um, so for me, it's this next chapter is um, transitioning to to being a voice, to testifying at hearings, at Senate hearings, and um, sharing my experience and my story so that they can learn from it. That's amazing. Cause I mean, I think so many people benefit from your coaching, but since you've coached all these other coaches, you know, they'll, they'll carry on your legacy, but wow. you know, I know one thing that you've really been the recent victory I'd say is family court awareness month. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, that was another idea that it was born in my entrepreneurial, you know, 2am brain. <laughs> when I was laying in bed, I just thought, you know, the reality that most people in our world, my neighbors, you know, my neighbor across the street will ask me about the weather. And I'm like, wait, do you know what's happening in our court system? I don't want to talk about the weather. You know, the majority of people have no idea that we have a crisis on our hands. So Family Court Awareness Month was born from that frustration of how do we raise awareness at a community level, start talking to mayors, start talking to community members so that people aren't suffering in isolation. So I packed my whole family in the car in, or in, the, in an RV two years ago in November. We kicked off on November 1st in Los Angeles with a press conference. Senator Susan Rubio came, a bunch of amazing people and got in an RV and drove all the way to South Carolina spoke and, and really? had media stops along the way uh, where we brought together judges, family court professionals, police officers, media, survivors, and seven different stops. Somebody donated billboards. So we would pull into Nashville and there would be a huge billboard up for Family Court Awareness Month. And everything came together in eight weeks. We didn't plan this all year. It was just one of Tina's crazy ideas. And last year, uh, last November, we actually took it to a level where we empowered people within their own communities to reach out to their mayors and elected officials and ask for proclamations declaring their town or their county and even states. We ended up with 12 states and over 225 cities and counties across the country who all proclaimed November as Family Court Awareness Month. So I was attending all these city council meetings. I did 12 in one day from like 5 a.m. in the morning until late at night. So it was, it's been a huge success. And so we're planning next November already. 
Amazing. It's yeah, awesome. I mean, it's it's just got to feel, I know that despite the the setbacks sometimes and, and we, God knows that you've had a, a lot of them and been through your share of them. So, I mean, it's, it's just wonderful to hear that there is some change coming from, from all the work that you've done. And I know that you've inspired so many people out there and we honestly, I mean, cannot thank you enough for coming on here, but we, we do have a tradition on this podcast and it's a, to ask a question of the day of our okay. of our guests just because you know we we're talking deep stuff it, it gets you know a little heavy sometimes so so we just like to kind of spice it up a little bit so you know my my question of the day today is is what is your favorite way to self-soothe slash kind of pamper yourself I go to the beach. I am fortunate enough to mm-hmm. live um, within ten min- a 10-minute drive to Pismo Beach um, and in Cambria, California, and I will just go sit and just shoes off, just sit in the sand and uh, watch the waves. And we're really lucky here because the weather <laughs> is in the 70s pretty much year-round. <laughs> so oh, man. that mm-hmm. is that is how I, I decompress, you know, sometimes I go there and I just have an ugly cry and other times it's just, uh, sitting in gratitude. That's awesome. And I'm, I'm extremely jealous because even though I am on, uh, you know, I'm on the water, I'm in Charleston, but I lived in San Diego for three years and there is nothing like San Diego weather or just Southern California. I mean, I forgot what rain was like. And then I came back to Charleston and was like, what is this coming from the sky? Um, so, I mean, you and Todd have got some good stuff going on over there. And yeah. that also leads me to, to immense gratitude for you waking up at 6 a.m. to or earlier than that to, to do this recording because we're on different time zones. But I've had a fantastic time. I know I'm sure that Todd can. It's can, been incredible. Yeah, so we we just can't thank you enough. This has been so awesome. We'd love to have you back. Tell, let's tell the viewers how can how can people find you, Tina? OneMomsBattle.com um, and also the organization that we just recently launched, uh, National Safe Parents Coalition. It's NationalSafeParents.org. So I would, if you're looking to get involved, if you you know resonate with what we've talked about here today, join our efforts. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. And, and we hope you have a wonderful weekend with spending time with your daughters and, and your husband. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Well, we just finished an amazing conversation with Tina. Mind blown. Mind blown. Ciao. That was, I mean, first of all, now I'm thinking of like all of the people that I know in my life that could fit into the category of a narcissist. It's just, it's, yeah. it's mind blowing and, and a little scary. Yes. I, th- I think that's probably an understatement. I mean, even just to hear her say, you know, that there's now recorded evidence of people like children being murdered because they're, you know, the court system's letting sociopaths essentially have 50 50 custody with their kids and and just the lack I really what really resonated with me and you you really brought like brought it home too with your kind of emphasis on it is the the parental rights versus the child rights like you know I've never really thought of it that way couldn't believe it that it's like we're putting 
we're treating them like property. We're treating kids like property. And that, that's, and and they're that, not. That's just, they're little, they're yeah. human beings. They have rights. And, you know, if they clearly are, you know, scared of daddy or scared of mommy, that needs to be taken into, It should be know, taken into account, I would think. I mean, know, it's your safe space. Yeah, this 50-50 stuff, it, because they're both parents, they both get, they both get the opportunity. Well, not if one's friggin' abusive, you know? It's like, yeah. it's like. Exactly. There's got to be, you know, the, the, the carve out. I was I was so excited to hear that they're the the awareness month that they actually had judges involved because I am still blown away that judges are not required to take any training on domestic violence. That's nuts to me. You know how much domestic violence yeah. is going on in the whole world. And they're world. making judgments about how <laughs> about about it. It's it's insane. It's actually insane. Yeah. But she, Tina, was just uh, um, you know, she's so uh, like I keep saying inspiring, but that's what she was. I mean, I feel like God, I'm not doing enough. We're we're not. Do- I know. Doing what are, what are we doing? We are literally what are, what are the laziest assholes in the world. <laughs> um, but it did. It was it, it was a bit of a beacon of like okay. Well, now, especially hearing how much she went through and endured, you know, the least, the least we can do is, is go, you know, support this coalition and, and really get, you know, do some more research about this kind of situation. And, and like she said, right, your, you know, your Congress people and anybody that, that can help kind of change this legislation, I think, is extremely important. Yeah, but, she just, um, her message, get involved, get involved, call all the people you need to call. And um, she's definitely doing doing some amazing work. And she did answer our question of the day. She did. I kind of loved her answer, going to the beach. That's pretty rad. Yeah. Rad. I see, once again, I now feel like a worse person than her because I feel like my answer is going to be very different. Yeah. What is your answer? What What is your favorite way to self-soothe or pamper yourself, Laura? Just laying down and not moving, you know, just for like 10 minutes with two kids, you know, just to be able to just lay there and literally not. Ha- no, I'm just kidding. I, I honestly, I, I, I'd say working out is a huge thing for me. It gets out all that pent up anger, or whatever. It, oh, yeah, you're a spin class girl. Okay, that it was a one time. I, I'm gonna be going back. I have to. I signed up for a membership, but I am still, I'm still hurting from that. Peloton, no how, no way. I, I may have actually torn my quadriceps. Told y'all last week I needed one, and it still holds true. But you know, and I, I try. So yeah, that's usually my my go to. How about you? What is your favorite way to self soothe or pamper yourself? I really like getting uh, manicure pedicure facial kind of thing i'm uh, or a massage i love oh, love man, like tissue that, massage let's just let I'm, just i let, change my let, answer let, my you god know, you just you know get a massage you know and 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 not one of the inappropriate ones you know yeah you know? so yeah we're gonna try to stay away from the happy endings but it's you know the the <laughs> massage in itself oh my gosh <laughs> yeah i gotta tell you she was she was fascinating what a great interview laura what a great what a yeah. great I'm, I'm so happy you reached out to her and i'm so glad that she said yes to us and uh, it's, I truly feel lucky that I mean, just immense gratitude in general that we get to not only do this, but talk to people like that, like that's just mind blowing. And, and how, yeah, how many powerful people we will be talking to as, as this goes on. It's just still it's I'm still giddy. <laughs> Keep listening, guys, because we've got a lot of stuff coming up for you. This is this is Laura and Todd on next page. Thank you.